praying. How about if you'll join me? Holy Spirit, come. Lord, you are so good. Thank you for a beautiful time of worship. Thank you for all the wonderful things you've done for us this week. Thank you for the ways that you're intervening around the world and in our lives, between us and all of the difficult things that happen. Thank you for the ways that you see us through our challenges. God, I ask that you would draw near and you'd speak to us today. You'd reveal yourself to us and that you would help us to understand where we're at in this story and, more importantly, where you're at. God, I ask that we would be able to perceive your presence, that we'd be able to know you better, that we'd be changed. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're talking about prayer, and I want to start just by talking about some tools for prayer. So one tool is ministry time today. Um, soon, maybe not soon enough, I will stop talking, and we will have ministry time, and uh, it's my favorite time, it's my favorite way to get prayer, to be totally honest, because you stand, you come up to the front, and um, you introduce yourself to whoever puts their hand on your shoulder, and then they do all the hard work, and you just, like, stand there, if you're like me, you stand there and cry. Um, We also have Sunday night prayer call on Zoom, Josh mentioned that just a second ago, that's at 7 p.m. on Zoom, from the comfort of your own home, with your bunny slippers on, you can pray with some friends from church. We also have the Echo Prayer app. This is great for intercession. You can put a prayer request on there, and people will pray for you like that day. Um, you can also get little alerts whenever somebody else puts something on there, and you can pray for your friends. I love the way that the Echo Prayer app has really connected some of us in this community, and I would love it if everybody felt that connected. Um, I think we've recently mentioned the Lectio 365 app. This is the most, like, um, if you're quiet time, like if quiet time is like too quiet, uh, you can get some people to walk you through it. <laughs> and we've been doing this with our kids. They have morning prayer and nighttime prayer. And um, our kids love to do nighttime prayers because it's a way to stall on bedtime, which is perfect. Uh, our, our, our desires align in that. And um, some people have put it together to kind of talk through like some scripture. They have some pauses for silence. There's some music in the background. Sometimes you get the woman reading scriptures who has the Scottish accent, which is super cool. And um, I don't think Ender has stayed awake through the whole thing even one time. He always (laughs) falls asleep. Both's a little more, you know, like stubborn and won't fall asleep, you know, on principle because he's a big kid. But um, it's a great way to uh, create that rhythm with your family if you want to. So um, that's one that I might recommend um, if you're single, if you're married, if you've got kids, if you've got pets, pray with them with that um, wonderful Scottish woman. And then one other tool, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but it's made a big difference for me just here lately, is saying good morning Jesus in the morning, which sounds really simple and like something like, I think everybody's like, wait, am I in Sunday school right now? Like where am I in kids ministry? But um, I was looking for more information about the exam and one time on YouTube, I was just kind of like wandering around. Probably it was a stall tactic for me from doing something responsible. And I ran across a priest who, who was talking about the best advice he ever got from Mother Teresa. And I thought, oh, that's, I mean, like, like that's like pastor clickbait, right? Like, <laughs> I want to know what was the best advice you ever got from Mother Teresa? And um, he said Mother Teresa encouraged him. And, of course, Mother Teresa has such wonderful advice. Like, you've maybe heard, like, it doesn't matter. Don't think about the numbers. Just help the very next person. Pick whoever's closest to you and help them. Or if you want to serve God, go home and love your family. Like, she's really good at, like, some pithy, powerful advice. Um, so I kind of thought it might just, I was, I was kind of ready to be like, I already know all of Mother Teresa's advice. But I didn't. I had never heard this before. Mother Teresa encouraged um, 
this guy who's kind of struggling in his own life, she said, just every morning when you wake up, before you get out of bed, before you do anything else, just say, good morning, Jesus. Just pray that very simple prayer, three words. And you don't have to do anything else, that's it. And the guy did it, and he said, things really changed. And then he said his sister was going through a really difficult time, and he gave her that advice. And, and he said they kind of had a relationship where she kind of leaned on him a lot, you know, like things would be challenging. And she, and it wasn't like, he said, not quite codependent, but like codependent adjacent, you know, like we were kind of had one of those kind of relationships. And I really wanted her to develop and build a faith that she could stand with Jesus through these hard times, you know, without always reaching out to another person. Not that community's not good, but just they'd kind of like gone that way of like, oh, you're my priest brother, so you'll fix things for me. So he gave her that. He said, just say every day, say, good morning, Jesus. Do it for 10 days. Don't call me again (laughs) until after 10 days. Run this experiment. And he said, and she called on the third day, and he screened the call and didn't answer. And she called on the fourth day, and he screened the call and didn't answer. But then after 10 days, he called her to check in, and she said, wow, things are like weirdly different. I can't even tell you what it is. I can't really point to it. I just, I feel so much closer to the Lord. So I started doing that. And um, I mean, I, I hate to, I, I don't want anything about prayer to say like, oh, here's the magic pill, or here's the secret formula, or here's the incantation or whatever. But just the act of acknowledging God first thing in the morning, I find that like, it's like it primes my brain to go back to God again and again throughout the day. It's been really surprising. So if you don't take away anything else from this sermon on prayer, um, maybe you want to take Mother Teresa's advice. I'm sure she's a better preacher than me. And um, consider this week, try it out. Say, good morning, Jesus. And um, I, I, would, I would love to hear how that impacts you, if it has an effect. Um, so today, as we talk about prayer, the question that I have that I come to with prayer all the time is, why is prayer so difficult? Like, sometimes this stuff is just hard. Like, why am I, why do I suck at this? Like, I'm a pastor, I should be good, I should have figured all of the prayer things out. But I feel like prayer can be really difficult. I want to blame my modern world, you know, I'm so distracted, there are so many apps on my phone and TV shows to watch and pressure to be like a super involved neurotic mom and, you know, you know, like, just like there's a lot of things I need to get done in my day and so slowing down for prayer I think can be um, difficult, but I think um, I'd like to look at the story, and you might be familiar with it, about the Canaanite woman and the conversation that she has with Jesus. Um, so something that I think is true and interesting, and it kind of dawned on me as I was prep- prepping for this sermon, is really, really every conversation that anyone has with Jesus in the New Testament is a prayer, because they're talking to God. It's so handy that God puts on flesh and walks around like a person and has conversations, and then those conversations get rewarded so we can kind of, or get recorded, sorry, so we can kind of see what's it like for other people when they talk to God, because uh, there they are talking to Jesus, and he talks back, and they have a little exchange, and you know, I, I so rarely have like thought like, oh, this might this might guide and direct my prayer life, but that's my, that's my big insight, <laughs> um, getting ready for this. Maybe I'm the last one to this party, and you all know it, in which case, please bear with me. Um, but before we turn to the Canaanite woman, I think it would be helpful for us just to take a moment of self-reflection, and can you think about a time when you grew? Like, think about a time of growth in your life. Maybe something that happened as a child or as a teenager, Um, maybe uh, a time in your professional life or in an important relationship. Can you think about a time that, you know, kind of around the beginning you were one way and then 
some things happened and some time passed. And then at the end, you were a different way. So some examples that I can think of are, you know, I think school gives us a lot of markers by which we can see growth, you know, like making improvement on a thing. I couldn't do multiplication, and then I could do multiplication because I practiced and I applied myself. Or like my youngest son right now is taking uh, lessons on the drum set and like, oh, the learning curve is so steep at the beginning. He's like so much better than he was just a few months ago. So, you know, like seeing that kind of growth is very cool. Um, but sometimes growth comes through things that aren't like as mundane as, as school or lessons. Sometimes growth comes through big challenges, right? Like when I think of a significant time of growth for myself and also my sister when we were growing up, um, is my mom, she went back to college when me and my sister were in like junior high, high school. And um, we lived in a small town. And so my mom did a lot of, she went to the community college to knock out a lot, whatever like gen ed classes she could. She was going back to school to be a math teacher. And so, but then there came a time when she had to commute like an hour and a half to um, the university. And she usually got worked it out. So she was doing this like three days a week. But there was one semester, just the way the classes fell, she had to be there every single day. And so me and my, her and my dad, um, in total agreement, like their marriage wasn't in trouble, but they made the decision that she would live away from our family. They got her an apartment for her to live at Monday through Friday so that she could go to class five days a week, not spend three hours every day um, commuting, which like a fun party trick for my mom, you can like name a mile marker within a certain range and she can tell you what it looks like or like what gas station is nearby on like this stretch of road that she drove over and over and over. Maybe you've had a commute like that. You could do the same thing. Um, so this one semester, she lived away from us. And my sister really grew up a lot. My sister's older than me. And she took on a lot of the cooking and a lot of the cleaning um, for our family, for me and my dad. Um, my dad and I, my dad's not really like a homemaker kind of dad, you know, like he's a little more 1950s dad. And my sister kind of liked to cook, I think, before that anyway. But like shouldering that burden on a regular basis. And I was younger and just fairly, I was kind of clueless. I'm not a good cook. Everybody knows. They didn't want me to cook. I didn't, nobody wanted that. So, um, so my sister really became like the mom of the house in terms of like feeding the family. And to this day, um, Thanksgiving dinner is at her house because like she's the best one at it. <laughs> and she's super hospitable and she's unintimidated in the kitchen and she can make delicious things. And my children, you know, we go to Thanksgiving and then the rest of the year they ask me to recreate the various foods that they had during our like three day stay. And I just have to say like, I can't, I, I, I literally can't do that for you. And uh, so we really anticipate that one. For me, um, I grew a lot during that time too. Um, in being like kind of a support system for my family in terms of being like encouraging. I know this sounds kind of weird, but like, I'd, like me and my mom would talk on the phone every day and um, I got really good at like pep talks because it was hard for her to live away from us. And we've kind of had to explore our relationship some as adults of like, oh, was I being too much of the mom? Was she leaning on me too hard? And we've had to like thoughtfully put some boundaries in place and stuff. But if I have ever said something encouraging to you ever, um, that's a result of this time in my life when I really got called on to be an encouragement to my family, to my mom who was far away, and to my sister who was under a lot of pressure to like feed us, and not so much my dad. We never really had that kind of relationship, but I think I have a spiritual gift. I was just talking to Lindsay before the service that like I think our spiritual gifts they just leak out over all of the mundane stuff in our regular lives, 
And for me, like a gift of exhortation really was a big part of, like I really grew into that when, during that time when my mom was away and she wasn't there to do it for us, you know? So anyway, so maybe, maybe you've had a time of growth in your life and it's been because of a challenge or because something difficult. I, I, I rarely can think of times when I grew a lot when things were going really well, you know? Isn't that funny? Like when things were just like really going my way, life was smooth sailing. I didn't change a lot during those times. Maybe I enjoyed those times. But, um, you know, a lot of times growth comes from adversity and growth comes from challenge. Okay, so now to the Canaanite woman. Let's read this story from Matthew. Leaving that place, Jesus is on the move, as he does. Uh, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. What an incredible story. I feel like this story, it goes so fast. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I just, the more I read it, the more I think, like, geez, Matthew, like, you couldn't have given us, like, a little more about what's going on because it seems like like what like what is what is happening what is happening so let's go back through this and let's slow it way 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 down back to verse 21 so <clears throat> jesus was due to the region of tyre and sidon and let's think about what the canaanite woman is doing at this moment right or even in the moments like leading up to this so somehow she's heard about jesus that's going on and her daughter is possessed by a demon what must that be like what must that have been like? Like, how scary? And how did they know? Like, what did the daughter do? Did she talk in weird voices? Did she hurt other people? Did she hurt herself? Like, I just, like, think about, like, as a parent, when my child struggles, and my kids have a pretty good, like, when they struggle, it's like, they're a little bratty about a thing, or, like, they had a little conflict with a friend that, by the time I think of something we should maybe do about it, they've both forgotten them and the friend and they're like off playing and stuff. But like whenever my child has a problem, I like, I go into overdrive, like what can I do? Like I need to make a plan, I need to change things, we got a problem, how can we fix it? I talk to Josh, I get advice, I Google and Google and you know, you know. So I just trying to think about like this Canaanite woman shows up and she's, she's like from that area, so she's heard about Jesus and she goes to find Jesus, and she starts just, like, yelling after him. Like, this is how desperate it is for her. She needs help. She believes this man can help her. And so she goes to talk to him. And then the disciples, their, uh, their reaction, I think, here is so interesting. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out to us. So Jesus doesn't talk to her. But he also doesn't send her away, which is pretty interesting because she's a Canaanite and there's like a big ethnic barrier here between these people. The Jews would have thought, oh, we're going to be unclean even if we're in the presence of Canaanites. Like some of the big tragedies in the Bible came from like intermarriage with the Canaanites. Like this is a big problem and we need to protect ourselves, the disciples are saying, right? Like send her away. Probably she'll listen to you. Make her uh, go. 
And here's the disciples. They're kind of coming to Jesus. I think that's so interesting. Like, the Canaanite woman is coming to Jesus, and she's really treating him like a god, right? She's treating him like he is God. She's saying, help me, and she, and she believes that he can, and she's doing everything she can to get his attention. And the disciples kind of have this agenda, don't they? They're kind of showing up with their rule book, like, Jesus, you've got to get rid of this lady, because, like, we're going to get into, like, this isn't what we're, this is inconvenient for us. Make me comfortable. Help me be chill. Get rid of this inconvenience. And also, we don't want to be ceremonial and, un, ceremonially unclean. Jesus, I want you to act the way that I expect you to act. Carry out my agenda. The disciples aren't really treating Jesus like he's in charge at all, I think. Um, so Jesus answered, I was sent only to the last sheep of Israel. And this is really interesting. This is really interesting because he's, he's like, referencing the barrier. He's like calling a spade a spade, right? Like, I can't help you because there's like an issue between us. I wasn't sent to help you. And if we take like a 50,000 view of the foot view of the Bible, like if we get on a plane and fly way over the Bible, like the whole thing, we do see that Jesus comes to the people of Israel and then the Gentile salvation comes later, right? Like that's like a thing like Peter does. He goes and hangs out with the Gentile. He has the dream with the sheet and the animals and eat all the things. And then Paul comes along, he is himself a Gentile, and, and that's how the message really gets spread. But at this point, Jesus is like really narrowly focused just on the children of Israel. And so he references, like, this is where I'm at in terms of my mission. But by talking to her, he's also like engaging with her, right? Like he's not just brushing her off, and he doesn't say, go away. He says, we've got this problem. And she doesn't listen to his words. <laughs> Jesus' actions are speaking louder than her words, and so she sees her opening, and she takes it, and she kneels down. Lord, help me, she says, and here her actions are really sharing the gospel themselves, right? Like she's declaring the lordship of Christ by asking for his help. So Jesus speaks again, and he says this thing that seems kind of mean. It's not, is it not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? It would have been really typical. This like is in total line with what the disciples might expect, referencing or referring to the Canaanite people as dogs, they would have said the same thing. There's a racial slur here. A lot of people try to say, Jesus, didn't you really use a racial slur? But like he's talking about the Canaanites in a disparaging fashion, the way that everybody would have at the time. And, um, and what's so interesting about this is like, like he's saying this like mean thing about her and her people, right? And like elevating the children of Israel. But he's still talking to her, which he shouldn't be doing at all. Like at this point, the disciples are probably like, oh my gosh, Jesus, he stopped talking, just made her go away. Like, you can't talk to the Canaanite woman. Like, we have to leave here now, you know? So, like, Jesus is doing this really interesting thing where he's kind of, like, representing the cultural norm and the expectation, even as he's, like, totally breaking the rules about engaging with this woman. And so then she sees her opening. Yes, it is, Lord, she says. Even the dogs eat crumbs from the table. Uh, even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from their master's table, and she's got him at this point. And she knows it, and he knows it. Because how can Jesus, compassionate, merciful, saving Jesus, how can he resist this display of her weakness and her need and her desperation? And Jesus takes one look at her, and he says, woman, you have great faith. Like, talk about a U-turn. And at this point, the disciples, you've got to know, they're just like, What? <laughs> They did not see this coming at all. Jesus is using this opportunity to send a a really loud message to his followers who are super close to him, but they're still not getting it because they've been raised in Hebrew school and they've been raised in this culture that's like really about like just like our tribe and our little thing and our people and we're oppressed and circle the wagons. It's just us, it's just us, it's just us. And Jesus gives 
this Canaanite woman an opportunity to make her case. And she makes her case by declaring his lordship, and then he gives her this incredible compliment, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. I want to read you a little bit from this book called A Praying Life. It's by Paul Miller. I can't recommend this book enough. I really like it. I think I've read it like four times, and I still learn something new every time. He says this. He says, if Jesus, about this story, if Jesus were a magic prayer machine, he'd have held this woman's, or he would have healed this woman's daughter instantly, and we would not have discovered her feisty, creative spirit. Likewise, Jesus' ambiguity with us creates the space not only for him to emerge, but for us to emerge as well. If the miracle comes too quickly, there is no room for discovery, for relationship. He says earlier in the book even, like, sometimes the miracle comes so fast, I think it would have happened anyway. I think I got it for myself. I think I did it myself. I never get to a point of desperation. How many miracles have happened in my life that I'm giving myself credit for because I didn't have to wait on them? and I didn't have to pray for a long time. I didn't have to have a back and forth with Jesus. With both this woman and us, Jesus is engaged in a divine romance, wooing us to himself. The waiting that is the essence of faith provides the context for the relationship. Faith and relationship are interwoven in a dance. Everyone talks now about how prayer is a relationship, but often what people mean is having warm fuzzies with God. There's nothing wrong with warm fuzzies, but relationships are far richer and more complex. They're far richer and more complex. I think so often we confuse, as Americans, we confuse hope with optimism. We look on the bright side. We think that's what hope is. But the trouble with confusing hope and optimism is optimism gets crushed pretty easily. Optimism disappoints us again and again, right? Like, let's hope for the best, and then Russia invades Ukraine, you know? Like, my optimism can't stand up to, like, reality just smashes into it time and time again. So... um, Paul Miller talks about this. He references Luke 7, and let's just read this. Um, This is a really interesting passage and maybe one of my favorites and also really tricky. Um, Jesus went on to say, this is a totally different time, okay? Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare this people, the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. Uh, without the storyteller, we're alone in a meaningless world. So when we have optimism and then it gets crushed, so often we find ourselves drawn right into cynicism, like these children, right? Like we sang, we played the pipe and you didn't dance. And so we were on the bright side of things and then that didn't work out. And so then we immediately went to like the dark side of things and we're mourned and we're sad and you're not sad with us either. Like get on the roller coaster with us because we find ourselves in all of these like emotional places, right? But the thing about the way that Jesus reveals himself time and time again is he doesn't respond to the miracle instantaneously. He does have these interesting back and forths and exchanges, opportunities for people to build their faith, to grow and to change. And when we hold on to that hope, we're able to walk with Jesus through even the dark times. And so often that's what prayer is. It's walking with Jesus through these dark times and letting him craft the story around the good and the bad things that are happening to us. If we don't walk with Jesus, if we're just, it's just optimism that gets crushed and turns into cynicism, 
then we're left alone in a meaningless world. Let's talk about having a story or not having a story. So the Canaanite woman understood the story, um, understood Jesus to be the storyteller. He was in charge of their interaction. And so instead of becoming bitter or angry or aimless, as maybe I would if Jesus were to say to me, why are you even talking to me? You don't even belong here. You're the wrong ethnicity. She doesn't become cynical or controlling. She doesn't get manipulative. She's not hopeless. She keeps asking for help. She's not thankless, and she's not blaming Jesus. She just puts herself at his mercy, declares his lordship over the situation, and asks him to help her. So instead, she's a person who understands that God is writing this bigger story. She's waiting. She's watching. She's wondering. Instead of cynicism, she's full of prayer. Instead of being controlling, she's submitting to him. She's hoping. She's thankful and repenting. These are the kinds of things that mark a person of prayer. When we go through these difficult times, we don't expect to snap our fingers, to recite a magical incantation, and then everything goes our way. Instead, as we endure and as we slowly plod through the difficult times and we give God space and room to reveal himself, maybe even to reveal stuff that's going on inside of us, it really changes how we interact with the world and how we understand the world and ourselves. And I feel like we live in such a complicated world. Things are so complex. I mean, I want to give a nod to free will. I think a lot of times God restrains himself because he doesn't want to trample over our free will. I think if God showed up in like a, a, a vision right now that we all saw, that we might feel like, oh, well, that's it. God definitely exists and we'll never doubt again for the rest of our lives. But we might also lose our choice, right? Like I've, I've often heard an atheist make this argument of like, well, if God shows himself to me beyond the shadow of a doubt, then I'd believe in God. And it's like, mm. well, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't have to believe anything. Like all of the masks are off. Like everything that's hidden is shown. But if God shows himself to us perfectly, I think we have no choices left. We just become robots that, I mean, are we even worshiping God if we don't have any choices? But God hides himself. He keeps mystery and lets us build our faith he lets us go through times of doubt so that we can be consoled later in, in finding God and finding the wonderful things that he's doing even amidst difficult, difficulty. So how do we live out God's story? Instead of putting us, ourselves at the center, um, Paul Miller suggests that we don't demand that the story go your way. I thought this was really interesting, you know? Like when we have a hardship, of course we want to ask for a miracle. We want to ask for God to intervene. We want to ask God to help us and to bless us and to walk with us. But not demanding that the story go our way is a way that we can stay connected to God. Because if I get it set in my mind that the only way that God loves me is if the cancer is healed, and then the person that I love dies of cancer, well, Satan, Satan wins, right? Like, well, now I'm, I'm just going to walk away, right? It's like when we make these narrow parameters on things, and we insist on our own way, and we put ourselves in the center of the story, and we put what we want as like the thing, then we lose an understanding of God being God and God being sovereign. We lose our understanding of free will. And I think we make ourselves really easy targets for tragedy because if a tragedy, if one tragedy is enough to pull me away from Jesus, I don't have any faith at all. Also, to look for the storyteller. Look for the things that God is doing. I know there are times when life is just so hard and it's hard not to just focus on everything that has gone wrong, you know? Like we could just list that to ourselves over and over again. But I think looking for the places like, what is God doing? What is God up to? What are the things that I could be grateful for that maybe I've taken for granted? 
And he really helps us connect with God. And then to stay in the story. Don't walk away. I think so much of faith is just staying in it, you know? Just staying here. I'm just going to stay here with God. He's not doing things the way that I want him to do it. Things aren't turning out the way that, that I expect. He could just fix all of this, and he hasn't, and I don't know why. But instead of walking away, saying to myself, like, there's nowhere else I want to go. I don't have anywhere else that I can be because Jesus is here in this pain, and so I will also be here in this pain. And I know sometimes that might not sound like intuitively the right thing to do, because like, why would God have me stand in pain? Why would God leave me in pain? Why would God let the pain last? But God let the pain last for many prophets before us and many priests. God let the pain last for Jesus Christ. God let the pain last for Paul and the disciples, the early church who was, uh, many of them were crucified for their faith. And God wrote a story through their martyrdom. And, and it's one of the reasons why we're gathered here today. You know, if Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, but not as you will as I will. If Jesus had instead narrowed the parameters and said, God, I demand that you don't let me get killed tomorrow, what do we know about Jesus? Like the work would have gone undone. And think of like how many people throughout the millennial would have been left in like the hopelessness of how I read the Old Testament often, right? Like there's just no way to get close to God because I'm such a sinner. Jesus did this incredible work, and he did so much of it through suffering. Why would I think that God's not going to do incredible work through suffering in my life, too? I think so often American Christianity says, be a Christian because there's a bunch of goodies. We'll take care of it. We'll make the bad guys go away. We'll make the pain go away. But when we look at the life modeled by Jesus, he's given the strength by God to walk through the pain. And he draws near, the Holy Spirit draws near as so many of his followers walk through that pain. And I think that's, like, that's the broken world that we live in. You know, the first draft of this story was really great, right? Like the garden and Adam and Eve, and they walk with God in the cool of the day, and they mature on God's timeline. <laughs> like, I, I, I think they probably would have figured out the difference between right and wrong, like, over time, like being mentored and discipled by, you know, like, God. But they messed it up, right? Like, they wanted a shortcut. They wanted to get to the end of the story. They wanted things their own way. And so now we're in, like, plan B. And plan B is much darker. But it's not without hope. It's not without the life of Christ. It's not without the light to lead us into the great work that God is doing in redeeming the world and getting us back to Eden, you know, with, like, a new Eden that will come at the end of all time. So last week, we talked about fasting, and these are just the same slides. Um, we talked about fasting, we were talking about how do we break the yoke of oppression, because we were reading from Isaiah 58, where it says, like, the true fast breaks the yoke of oppression. And we talked about how we must think less of ourselves, or we must, we must think of others, we must limit ourselves, and we're going to get less than what we want. And I really just want to, like, pull this into prayer, too. We have to weave these concepts into our prayer life, too. My prayer life can't just be go hit the magic button and get what I want, safety and security for me and mine. Prayer needs to be focused outward on others as well, right? Like we're all in this together. Um, in terms of limiting ourselves, sometimes we also have to just accept the limits that are placed on us um, by the, the brokenness of the world that we live in, um, by God who's not, a, you know, like a, I don't know, a, a vending machine. Um, and we are going to get less than we want. And I think if we can go into prayer understanding that this isn't about, like, I'm just going to give my list of demands to Jesus, 
but I'm going to talk to Jesus about my needs and my wants and my fears and my hopes and all of my gratitude like I grow and develop as a person who can be used to do the kind of work that he has in mind. And maybe I have to go through some hardship and some suffering before I get there. We also talked about fasting, um, personal fasting, and then our corporate fasting. And I'll close with this, just talking about um, our corporate fast. So we talked about, like, we're going to fast from not inviting people to church, which is kind of backwards, right, because it's a very active thing to do. Like, we're going we're gonna to fast from the not doing of a thing. Um, and last week I did talk about, like, uh, go out to eat and leave it for your waitress, this little invite card. And we have six packs of invite cards on the back, so you can grab an invite card. And, um, and then you can run away, and if like, you're really socially anxious about inviting somebody to church, which is a shortcut of saying inviting people into community with followers of Jesus, that would be us, and with Jesus himself, and he'll make your whole life good. And I, I could just repreach that sermon again, but we don't have time. Um, uh, so anyway, I talked about like you can just leave it for a waitress, and you can run away if you're feeling like Ooh, nervous about it. And that's exactly what I did this week because I have a lot of social anxiety about this stuff, which really makes me a bad bastard that I feel shy about inviting people to church. So I got Panera, and instead of going, I had it delivered because then I'd have the delivery guy cornered, and I did, and give him the card, and then I went back and hid in my house with my broccoli cheddar soup. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I stand by that decision. It was good. I invited a person. My goal is to invite six people over Lent. I would love for everyone to invite six people, or give an invite six times over the course of Lent. If you haven't gotten one in yet, you're not behind because Lent lasts for 40 days plus six Sundays. So it's actually like six and a half weeks. And so we just went through the half a week, but we still have six full weeks between now and Easter. So one a week will still get you to your goal. Of course, my husband, I'll brag on him, gave out, I think, like seven cards this week. Good job, Josh. I'm so proud of you. Good job, babe. Um, partly because he served at Art Walk, and that's a great place to invite people. And also, I think he went out to eat and, like, invited people he got to talking to. at the co- Who talks to strangers at coffee shops? My husband does. And um, <laughs> that's how I know he has a gift of evangelism. I'm like, stop bothering people. Um, but I do want to confess that there is, like, a little bit of... Um, of uh, I'll buy my way out of my nervousness about that. And, you know, if I was talking to my 22-year-old self who really couldn't just afford to go out to eat whenever she wanted to, I think she would have been pretty irritated um, and would have said, like, oh, so we can only be evangelists if we have a little extra cash to go out to eat. Well, I don't have any cash because I'm 22 and poor. And um, if I could talk to her today, I'd say, buy Tesla stock now. Trust me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can do that. Um, I mean, I, I might do that, but that's not the point of the sermon. Um, but I think, I think that that's like a really good point is like sometimes like I set a goal and I get scared about, you know, can I do it? And so I look for like, what are all of my strengths? How can I, how can I get out of this? You know, like how can I get through this easier? What can I do? instead of really depending on relying on God. And as I was thinking about it this week, I really felt like God said, you know, Kara, you could pray and ask me to have somebody ask you where you go to church, and then you can give them the card and we'll count that. You could even pray and ask me for a scenario in which it would be like really natural. Like you could give me this need of, I'm scared to invite somebody to come to church, and, and then you might be surprised at what I would give you. And maybe God won't give me deliverance from the social anxiety. Maybe he'd give me something very different. I don't know. Um, but that's going to be the experiment I run this week. So I'm not going to, 
I'm not going to go out to eat and just run after like card bombing somebody, but I still think that's not a bad plan, so please feel free to continue to do that. Um, but if you'd like to, I invite you to with me, like pray for an opportunity to like for God to help me notice someone that he wants invited to our church and um, and for like an in, you know, like a conversation starter or maybe something that they do that would make it okay for me to talk to them and say, hey, I have this really great church and I'd love to get to know you more and be your friend and you should come. So, um, so that's a thing that we can do. When we talk about prayer overall, I think um, the thing that I just want to hold on to is how I just want us to give God the freedom to be God in that relationship as we pray. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this last, I guess I said I'd close with the last thing. I'll really close this time. Um, was just reading about uh, an experience that Paul Miller had, his, him and his wife, with their daughter, Kim. Their daughter was born with some significant delays. And so he says this, kind of after he talks about the Canaanite woman, and this is like a page, so I'm just going to read the whole thing because I can't say it better than he does. Um, he has the heading, Another Woman and Her Needy Daughter. He says, I saw Jesus do the same thing with another woman and her needy daughter. Over a 25-year period, Jill, his wife, wrestled with God for Kim, their daughter. Week after week, our family, during family prayer time, Jill would pray for strength and faith, strength to get from the end of one day to the end of the next, and faith to not throw in the towel. Soon, the rest of the family didn't even have to ask Jill what her prayer request was. We already knew. Here's a glimpse of what was behind Jill's prayer for faith. She wrote this journal entry right after she discovered that she was pregnant with our sixth child, Emily. Kim was five years old. I'm now 32. Oh, dear I wonder what this year will bring. Maybe Kim talking? It's been very hard for me not seeing much progress in Kim. We're in the middle of her being evaluated again at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's so hard to tell what she can't do or just won't do. All of this is so hard. Hard to see and still believe Jesus loves her and me and hears me beg for her continual healing. It really is faith that is at stake. The suffering is a side issue. Just to tell Jesus what I need and leave it with him is such a struggle, especially as I see Kim struggle daily. It breaks my heart. Two days later, after the visit to Children's Hospital, Jill wrote, Give me the faith to leave this with you. Please help her to talk. Then the journal, then the journal goes silent. It would have been 10 years, or it would be 10 years before Jill would have the faith and energy to write another entry in her prayer journal. It would be another 20 years before Kim would begin to speak at age 25. God left Jill in confusion in order to grow her faith, her ability to connect with him. To become like a child, Jill had to become weak again. Jesus' ambiguous interaction with both Jill and the Canaanite woman is a mini course on prayer. God permitted a difficult situation in both of their lives, and then he lingered at the edge, not in the center of the story, at the edge. If he were in the center, if they had had regular visions of him, they would not have developed the faith to have a real relationship with him. God would have been a magic prayer machine, not a friend and a lover. When God seems silent and our prayers go unanswered, the overwhelming temptation is to leave the story to walk out of the desert and attempt to create a normal life in our own strength. But when we persist in a spiritual vacuum, when we hang in there during ambiguity, we get to know God. In fact, this is how intimacy grows in all close relationships. So would you stand? During our prayer time today, I would love for us 
to grow our intimacy and our close relationship with God. If you need prayer about something difficult going on or even just like prayer about making a regular practice of prayer, I'd love for you to come up. If you would say like, yes, like I am with you, like I'm really resonating with all this and I'm excited about it and, and I know that God will see me through difficult times and I'm full of faith, that it might be the voice of the Holy Spirit encouraging you to share that with someone else. So during your prayer time, I'd also like to invite you, if you're feeling that way, to like look around the room and go ask somebody if you can pray for them, if God highlights someone for you. I think we have some business to do with God about the whole concept of prayer. I think we can carry so much of like, you should do this or you must do this or it didn't work out kind of hurts in our past. And I think God wants to bring us great healing so that we can experience that closeness with him this morning. So April's going to play and um, we'll close in just a minute, but let's worship God and come get prayer. Mm -hmm.